All right, before we get into this episode of The Cutting Room, I need to thank our sponsors, which is Videoblocks, and they're giving us a deal to give to you guys. I don't know about you guys, but I'm always having to search for stock footage, especially when I'm working on documentaries. So a lot of people who listen know that I work on documentaries and commercials, and the amount of times we've had to search out footage for anything ranging from uh, news footage to stock footage of a city just so that we can show the audience that we're changing cities, has been too numerous to count. So I'm actually kind of excited that Videoblocks is supporting us because we actually use their product. So what they did for us is they're giving us a triple bundle deal for you guys that you pay one price and you get access to all their video, audio, and images. And that's $149. So that's all their video, audio, and images for $149. That's it. Locked off. You're good to go. With this, you get studio quality footage, audio, and images at a fraction of the cost compared to the others. You get to download all the stock media you could desire. All the content is royalty free and there's content constantly added. So if you want this $149 and I encourage you to go do it because they support us and without their support, we wouldn't be able to continuously put out these podcasts. To get this deal, go to videoblocks.com slash AOTG. That's videoblocks.com slash AOTG to get all the stock footage, audio, and images you can imagine for just $149. That's videoblocks, B-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash AOTG to save on millions of studio quality stock media from Videoblocks. But with all that said, let's get into this podcast. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this episode, we're interviewing Lynn Willingham. Now, Lynn's work includes some of the most memorable shows in the last 20 years, and that includes Breaking Bad, True Blood, The X-Files, among many, many others. Lynn and I sat down just before Edit Fest, and this was going to be used to promote Edit Fest, but there was an issue in our cutting room with, uh, well, if you heard our bonus episode that we threw up on SoundCloud, with a small fire in her building. So unfortunately we had to postpone this posting. Now we're getting it up and I want to thank Lynn for being so patient with this. I also want to thank Carly McKeating who cut this episode and got us up and running again. One last thing before we get into this interview, uh, I want to give two shout outs to some people online. Eddie who tweeted at me as well as Sean. I was having like a very exhausting week last week. I was working on multiple projects. I was teaching a couple classes and I was just exhausted. And then a couple tweets came through from these guys just telling me that they enjoyed the podcast. And I'll, I'm telling you, completely turned my week around, guys. And so I just want to say thanks to you guys because it, it meant a lot to me. If you want to get in touch with us, of course, you can get us on Twitter at AOTG Network. Okay, with all that said, let's get into this interview with Lynn Willingham. Can you start by telling me how you got into film and specifically film editing? I have a brother who's a film editor. His name is Steve Merkovich. And he, he was, at the time that I got in, he was probably doing, you know, he was assisting on some really big features. And he said, you might really like this. And it was a very good time for women to get into film. 
because it was, you know, during affirmative action and people were a little more open. It had been very male prior to that. Mm-hmm. I had gone to UCLA and was a, was a fine arts major. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with that. So I got married and the first time and I, I dropped out of school. And my brother said, why don't you look at this? Because I was in retail. I was in retail for 10 years from like the time I was 15 years old till I was 25. And it, you know, it was a fine job, but yeah. I was totally done with it. And it wasn't very creatively <laughs> stimulating. <laughs> and he said, you know, check this out. So I did. And, and he had friends and I had friends who actually were uh, film editors and I could go and hang with them. So for six months while I was working in a, a small store, I was also driving over to Universal Studios every day and hiding from their union. They really had union reps at the time. And I was learning how to be an apprentice, but not getting paid for it. So I guess you'd call it an intern yeah. now, but then all they called it was, you know, somebody who shouldn't be there. <laughs> and I did that for about six months. And then I got a probationary job at Paramount for two weeks. They hired me for two weeks. I guess that was their, you know, HR way of hiring somebody. And if they didn't like them, getting rid of them. Yeah. So I was in and then Paramount hired me for two weeks and I stayed there for five years, I think. Oh, wow. What were you doing at Paramount at that time? Film shipping, mostly. You know, because there was so much physical labor, because it was film. So there was all this toting around of reels and coding, you know, things that you don't do now. Mm-hmm. They used a lot of, of apprentices then, which now the studios don't use apprentices at all. So they used a lot of apprentices, and that's what I did. And the great thing about the job was if the shows got really busy, and Paramount Studios at the time had... I think they had 10 or 15 uh, multi-camera comedies plus pilots they were doing. Gary Marshall worked there and um, Miller Milkus Boyette was there and they were big comedy guys. It took a lot of people to do those shows, especially if you were doing a pilot, a lot of coding because, you know, they might have 10 reels of film, but that's 30. Mm-hmm. So all of them had to be coded and all of them had to be logged and, you know, on a multi-cam show, they've got a three-headed, what they call a three-headed monster and a gang sink. Chris just walked by and said the monster was five heads. <laughs> well, three or four picture heads and a sound head, depending on, you know, what machine you had. And, and so there was just a lot of physical labor. And, there, and when there was nothing to do, which was great, like they'd just take us back into film shipping and, I don't know, have us do cleanup work for the whole season. Yeah. So we were never off work for like five years. We, we were constantly employed, which was great. And then, you know, I, I just I eventually got to assist on one of the shows. And then I went off and assisted a guy who worked for Stephen Cannell. He started his own studio. Uh, he started with Greatest American Hero, and then he, which I did not work on, but my husband did. And then they did you know, the A Team and a whole slew. At one point, I think he had 22 shows oh, wow. that he was producing in town. Chris and I stayed there for 10 years. Oh, wow. And then we just, you know, the studio closed and we went off and did other things. And I was lucky enough to get onto the X-Files as an editor. How did you get involved with the X-Files? What was the the connection? Well, a lot of the young baby directors who started at Stephen Cannell went on to be big directors. Rob Bowman, um, Brian Spicer, Tucker Gates, they all started at Stephen Cannell as insert shooters, which was something that they didn't have to be in the DGA for. And they were right out of college. There was like six or seven of them. And it, you know, it wasn't just inserts. It was second unit. And then it was second unit with principals that they had to be brought into the DGA. 
when you worked for Stephen Cannell, it was there was so much product going in and out yeah. that it was like you were in a university of how to make films and how to make them fast. So Rob, when when the studio shut down, Rob was kind of on a uptick. Mm-hmm. Morgan and Wong, who were writers, had worked for Stephen Cannell. Morgan and Wong went off to do their own thing. Chris went to do, I think it was Space Above and Beyond. And Rob had gone over to the X-Files to be one of their directing producers. Maybe Chris was working for them at that time. Maybe he had come over to do Millennium. Anyway, Carter thought it would be intriguing to have a married couple working for him. So he hired me. Chris did one season of Mm X-Files, but he did Millennium for him and Lone Gunman and stuff like that. So he was already in the Carter camp. And I came in and then I stayed, like I said, for five years on the X-Files. And I met Vince Gilligan there. One of the first shows I ever did, actually the first show I ever did, he wrote. Manners directed, and it starred Brian Cranston. It, it was called Drive, and you know the rest, as they say, is sort of history. I mean that that connection with Vince then got me Breaking Bad. Oh, really? Because I knew him for such a long time, and then Breaking Bad because it was such a hit. Yeah, opened up a slew of doors. Alan Ball hired me because he loved Breaking Bad, so I did True Blood for three or four years, three years I think. And you know, it's just it's it's just one of those things that's mushroomed. Wow. Once you got onto something like X-Files, because you came in later, how did you sort of catch up with everyone and get into the groove with them? Like, what, was there anything you did to sort of get into the style or the technique or? Not, you know, not really. The, the, the way X-Files was, it was very style determined by the time I got there, as you say. Mm-hmm. And consequently, the directing producers, Rob Bowman and Kim Manners, they really set a a style for the show that was easy to follow. They were both very clean shooters. It wasn't shotgun. They knew what they wanted. They knew what the, the show was supposed to look look like. I think both of them came in like the second year. And so it was kind of easy to follow their style. Mm-hmm. I had never watched it because I'm not a fan of horror. Strangely enough, I, I love cutting it, but it scares me if I watch it as an audience. So I hadn't watched the X-Files and then I started, you know, it's not like I went back and watched every single episode I'd never seen because that would have been 80 episodes (laughs) or something. I saw the ones that I needed to see, but I didn't see a lot of the first three, four years, whatever it was. And it was so in the camera and it made such sense between the page and the camera that I didn't find there was a learning curve. The only thing I really, you know, learned whether, and it probably was there, is that The X-Files was a POV-driven show. Yeah. So everything was from the POV of of either Mulder or Scully, and everything had to be seen through their eyes. So the big thing about horror and scaring someone is the less you see, the more frightening it is. Mm -hmm. That was a style that had been obviously set up, and that was a style that was easy to follow because of that. If you had the option of showing the monster or not showing the monster, you dealt with the monster very sparingly because the monster wasn't scary. Your fear of the monster was scary. So that was something I've taken away. And I've taken away that. I, I, I mean, I use that all the time yeah. because I, you know, obviously True Blood was a thriller and at horror, a horror genre. And I've, I've cut things where, you know, even thrillers, if they're not horror, if there's somebody coming after somebody, it, it's better to watch the person through their eyes figure it out. You don't want the audience to know what's going on mm-hmm. usually before the person who it's going to happen to. There's a bigger 
there's a bigger thrill, there's a bigger scare if you follow the person who's in the story as opposed to saying, oh, look, there's a guy behind the door and now this guy's going to come and, oh, he's going to scare him. You know, you want the audience to be as frightened as your main character. You know, there are exceptions, but usually that's kind of a rule I follow in, in any thriller or horror that I cut now. And it seems to work pretty well. Now, you you mentioned working with Brian Cranston before Breaking Bad. And what I w- always want to know from editors is what you look for in the rushes. When you're working with a director or a producer or anyone, what do you look for and what helps you make a decision on a particular shot? Oh, it. It's just performance. You know, the first thing you look for in any piece of film is that actor's performance. And there's so much film that's shot now Mm -hmm. because it's so easy because it's digital and it's cheaper that the choices are much wider than when we were on film. After you've read a script and you know the tone of what you're going for, either from from a meeting, like a tone meeting where, you know, they bring you in and, and, and talk about, you know, what they're looking for and this, what people's motivations are. It's easier in a series sometimes because you, you know the motivation of your main character mm-hmm. and the personality of them and how they'd act and how they wouldn't act in certain cir- circumstances because you're telling an episode over, you know, 22 or in the case of the Exiles, you've been telling a story over hun- hundreds of episodes. Yeah. But the first and most important thing is that actress performance. You want something real and believable. Secondary is, you know, matching is always kind of an issue, but it, it definitely takes second place to the performance. Performance is everything. Now, if I remember correctly, Kelly Dixon's a big X-Files fan. So did she uh, pick your brain once you got on Breaking Bad? You know, what was, what's really funny is Kelly assisted me. I came back. Chris and I did, a, a, it was really wonderful. We did a, a miniseries in Italy in 2004. And it's very rare. It was very rare at that time for a studio to send television editors out of the country. Mm-hmm. When we came back, Chris went on to do, I don't know what he did, maybe 24. I went on to do a miniseries called Revelations, and Kelly was on it. And um, she came in with Juan Garza. It started off with Gabriel Ryan and myself being the editors on this. And it was shot in Hungary, and he was in Hungary or Romania or someplace like that. And I was in the States. And it got to be such a big project with such a short schedule that in the course of getting it on the air, we ended up bringing in like three more editors and assistants mm-hmm. and visual effects crew. It was a huge thing. And Kelly came on and she was honestly, it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. She was like starstruck and she knew more about the X-Files than I did. You know, I just come off of five years on it and she knew she'd seen every episode and she'd seen them again. <laughs> I mean, it was like she had just watched all 200 episodes or something. And I, she'd say, you did that one. And I'd say, I don't remember. And she'd go, yes, you did. You know, it was really funny. It was like, Kelly, how, how do you know this stuff? But for years then, she then became my assistant. Yeah. And we went off to do Without a Trace, we did together. And then we got off of Without a Trace after three or four years. And we went and did the pilot for Breaking Bad. So over the course of four four years that I worked with her before Breaking Bad, or five years, yes, she she was the go-to expert on the X-Files. Absolutely. <laughs> now, you said you did the first episode for Breaking Bad. Is that correct? I cut the pilot, yeah. One of the, as far as I can tell, because I haven't cut a pilot before, but you're always, you're working to sort of figure out how this is going to feel and look, and, you know, there's going to be adjustments to it to try and make it work. What What was the process like for the pilot to figure out the style or the the feel or the tone? Well, 
the interesting thing about the pilot is it was probably the easiest pilot. It's the easiest pilot I've ever heard of being done. I mean, I, I've only cut like three pilots really in my whole career, and two of them were incredibly easy, and they were really good. And I think, you know, Vince is a detail man, mm-hmm. and so everything was was on the page that he wanted. And as the director, then he shot everything that he wanted. When somebody has a very clear vision of where that story should go and you are following their film and not fighting it, it's easy. It's, it's pleasurable. As long as you have, and he did, excellent actors mm-hmm. and he just knew where, what he was going to do. It's not shotgun. It's not like, oh, what was he thinking here? What was he thinking there? What was he thinking here? You know, everything was so simple in that respect. So it was a lot of work um, because I think we shot maybe for 15 days, but, um, and there were some big, you know, pieces that required uh, a lot of sound work. We had, we had sound issues, which actually became more of Kelly's problem than mine in a lot of places. And this was really before ISOs were so, you know how easy it is to get an ISO now, you yeah. double click your you thing and there it all is yeah well in those days you had to order them up and it was a deal i mean that poor girl spent so much time on yeah. sound she's excellent sound effects editor by the way um that she didn't get to cut what she wanted to and you know one of the things when we moved over to do this pilot it was funny because i was supposed to on without a trace i was supposed to cut the finale of without a trace and the showrunner was directing. I don't know if it was his first time directing. And I, it, I would have had to have left to do Vince's pilot. But it turned out that, you know, Greg Walker, who ran Without a Trace, had worked with Vince and they were friends. I mean, I don't know if that helped ease over the situation or not. But when Vince's assistant called me and said, Vince Gilligan has a pilot. Are you interested? It's like, hell yeah. <laughs> because he was the, out of all four of the writers on The Exiles, including Chris Carter, he was the best writer. He was just genius. And like, he's a great guy. And I'm sure this pilot's great. So when the guy said, are you interested? It was like, yeah, absolutely. So he said, I'll send you the script. And I said, just tell him I'll do it. And he said, oh, okay. So they did send me the script. We did move over. Um, Kelly had been begging me for like, you know, months to get a pilot and get them, get us out of without a trace because she could see she wasn't going anywhere there yeah. <laughs> and you know she said I was getting complacent and I needed to move and it was like okay so we took the pilot and and she had hoped she could cut on the pilot so that she could get moved up because that's you know the only way that assistants seem to really be able to get moved up and and it got so busy with sound work she didn't get a chance to cut much but we got to the end I remember and there were three scenes there was a montage and a couple of bigger scenes. And I said, look, I said, I know you don't have a lot of time. And she loved, she loved working with music. I said, cut the montage. Let's see what happens. And I'll cut the other two scenes. She said, okay, that's what she wanted to do. Well, of course, the montage became signature for Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the show, I mean, we went through a Sony, you know, we delivered to Sony. They loved everything about it. We delivered it to AMC. They loved everything about it except for our music choices, which insulted Vince at first, and they got Thomas Golovich in, and he changed the whole tone to the quirkiness that is now, you know, Breaking Bad's uh, musical style. Mm -hmm. Um, Christina Wayne was the executive at AMC, and she just, she kept saying, this is a 
this is a mini feature. This isn't television. This is like a mini feature. And I want to treat it like an independent film. And I hate your music choices. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was completely right. Christina Wayne. She was completely right. She just, she wanted it to look like an independent feature and our music choices were not what she wanted. And, and so kudos to her because bringing Thomas Golubich in was a huge uh, boon for that series. Mm-hmm. But you know, style-wise, like I said, a lot of it was on the page. Um, a lot of it was in the montage. Cutting it as if it were a serious comedy, you know, because it's, when you cut comedy, your timing is slightly different. But in a lot of these shows, which are single-camera comedies or dramedies, which is what Breaking Bad is, you've got to find the humor, but keep it very real. It can't, it can't make fun of itself. Yeah. It can't become a parody. It, it, these are real people in real situations, and it, and it, it, it you could go off the rails so quickly mm-hmm. if if you aren't careful, and so everything about it was pretty much perfect. The only thing, and and I don't know if I set it up style. I don't, you know, people say, "What did you set up stylized in that?" At first, I didn't think it was anything, but then you go back and you look at it, and it was like, yeah, okay. So the montages, obviously, Kelly cut the first montage. Um, I did have some input on that. And, you know, both of us going forward cut a lot of montages, and, and that was a style piece. He, at one point in the opening of the show, he looks into the camera. He has a video camera that he's, that he's recording a, a, a final message to his wife, Skylar. And, you know, Vince filmed this thing where he looks into his video camera, and he filmed it as video. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, obviously, we have to cut to that. Obviously. To me, it was so obvious. And when he saw it, he said, I never intended it for to be used there. And I said, what did you intend? Because I was saving that piece for episode 12. And I was like, oh, I said, but it, it needed to be there. And he says, you're right. It needed to be there. So I think we set up that as part of a style. Yeah. Staying wide, letting the, letting the landscape and, the, you know, Albuquerque be part of, be, become a character. That was um, that was a style choice, and a lot of it obviously is is not just my style choices. You know, they say that, or at least we say that if if your producers have to change more than eighty percent of what you've done, there's something wrong there. They're working too hard, and so anything that you see is probably ninety percent the editors, eighty to ninety percent of the editors' work is in that cut. So if you're seeing a style. Mm-hmm. And even if that editor is following the style and not fighting it, that's a style that we establish, you know, between the director and, and the editor. It's the collaboration for sure. And how did you approach editing the montages then? So, like, once Kelly had sort of established that? Mm. I can't remember what started her wanting to do these montages. I don't know if she went online and started looking at other montages or in shows that we're starting to do it. But, you know, music had started to become a very, very big deal in television shows mm-hmm. from probably, you know, three years prior to that. With Grey's Anatomy, a lot of stuff happened. And their montages were very floaty. You know, it wasn't, it, it, you didn't hard cut to them. You didn't make it frenetic. You, you know, what Kelly did with the first one, because it was a mess making scene. Yeah. She just went and, and like, we picked a piece of music that we liked. That was the first thing. Mm-hmm. And then she just started, you know, hitting it, you know, hitting it with all the pieces of the film and then tweaking the film. You know, uh, if you go back and look at the very first montage, it, it had a lot of 
fun stuff going on with it. It's interesting because there's remnants in there of things that I know Chris had been doing in Millennium, I had been doing in X-Files, we had done in Empire, which are kind of these flashy dream things where you take the film, which you could do with film because it had run out and stuff, and you'd use a frame of it. And it would, you know, it would just jerk you into things, which she did. And I think we were, we were digital. Mm-hmm. So what she did in the montage of the first one of Breaking Bad, she, she kind of used some of those same techniques. She'd take two frames and blow them up 400%, you know, or she'd just push in, but it was all cut to the music. And that tweaking of images, that cutting it to, to a frenzied beat, because a lot of the music we used in those kinds of montages was hip hop or, or metal you had a really strong beat that you could cut to. And if you go back, that's pretty much what it is. Um, We had cut it to one piece that we really liked in the pilot. And then I don't know if we couldn't get the rights to it or Vince decided he wanted a different piece of music. And so they found a piece that was close. But when Kelly and I look at it, we both sort of go, because it's not exactly, it wasn't structured to be exactly on those beats to us. Nobody else could, you know, other people couldn't probably tell except for a really high-end music editor or another film editor who actually sat down and watched it. Yeah. But that was that became the biggest deal for us in the montage. We would try and get a, a piece of music approved early on so that it wouldn't have to change. I did one, uh, Johan Rink directed a show that had a montage that was a meth, mm-hmm. it was a meth-selling montage. And it was the the song I think was an instrumental called the peanut vendor, which, you know, isn't hip hop, but has a very specific melody. And at one point after it was cut, Vince wanted to change it. And I, I, God, I fought him tooth and nail on that. I said, you cannot change it now. It's cut to this. This is what makes it work. And finally he got outvoted, which was fantastic (laughs) because when you've worked really, really hard on a montage, and then you see it go off even a frame or two. It's like so disappointing. It doesn't matter probably to the rest of the world, but to you, it's like, oh, damn, it was so perfect the other way. Yeah. And then, you know, they were able to start writing these montages. They started writing them into almost everything they do now. Because I think that, you know, they're still doing it on Saul. Montages are just part of their signature now. And people like to see the montages. But the most fun ones that I remember doing was the Narcos Corridos video that was in an episode. And it was a Narcos Corridos song is always done in celebration of a drug dealer. Are those the ones that appeared on YouTube? Like there was ones where it was like there was drug dealers in I think it was Mexico Mm -hmm. and they made music videos. Mm -hmm. So that's what that was based on. Yes, that's what it was based on. And it was so funny because they said, you're going to cut a Narcos Corridos video. And I went okay, how do I do that? And they said, go and look them up online. Well, we looked them up online and it was so bizarre because it was, it was take every rule that you know about being a trained editor and throw it away. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were so outlandish and so, so cheesy and really fun, but just no way on earth would you ever cut anything like that. But these were people making these, these videos in their garage to celebrate drug dealers in Mexico. And so, you know, I watched about, I probably watched about 10 of them Yeah. before I did that. And then just went, 
okay, nothing's going to match. I'm going to throw in the weirdest video, visual effects I can find. <laughs> it was so fun. Just for fun one day, cut yourself a Narcos Corridos video. It is so fun. It's just, it's outrageous. It was just outrageous. It's probably why they enjoy doing them. Yeah. A lot of those people do them because they're, they work for the drug dealers. And, yeah. you know, a lot of these bands only write music for the drug dealers. So, you know, we actually had, we had a Mexican band that recorded it for us. And they, along with Vince and uh, one of the other writers, wrote the song. And at one point, they wrote it so that Heisenberg beat the drug dealer. And the guy said, you can't do that in a Narcos Corridos video, in a song. The drug dealer has to come out on top. Heisenberg has got to be the one that they kill. And it's like, okay. <laughs> it was like, well, new rules. Things to find out. <laughs> the hoot. Wow. Now, you've been very generous with your time. And I, I do have one question that I like to ask all the editors. And that's, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh, man. You know, there's a couple. I like The Princess Bride. It's a hoot. I, I love Airplane oh. because it's so ridiculously funny. I like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I don't, when I get into guilty pleasure movies, they're not heavy yeah. at all. I mean, they're, they're, I rarely go back and watch a movie over and over again. When Chris and I first got together, we watched Bridge on the River Kwai all the time. I don't know that we've seen it in years, but that was one of those, you know, save movies to go back to. And when I was a kid, every 4th of July, we watched Yankee Doodle Dandy. I mean, it was just, you know, there's, there are certain movies that just make you feel good. Yeah. They take you back to times that, you know, they either make you laugh or, or not. <laughs> it just, those, are, those are some of my faves. I know there are movies, recent movies that I've loved, but, you know, there's so much content that it's hard to remember what they are. And there's no movies that really we revisit because there is so much good stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got a, a DVR full of television that I haven't had time to watch that's, you know, really good that I'd like to see because we work all the time. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say, you know, I've been on Ray Donovan now for five years. Excellent, excellent show. Completely different, but sometimes funny. And that I just did the pilot for Claws, which was... I get one of the best pilots I've ever done. So Breaking Bad and Claws, mm -hmm. right up there. That is a stellar cast. If you haven't had a chance to see it, it's so fun. It's about women. It's a dramedy, but it's very dark and tons of fun. And it's kind of a dark Breaking Bad, a very dark female Breaking Bad. Okay, yeah, I'll have to check that out. Thank you so much for letting me interview and, and giving me this time. You're welcome. That was my interview with Lynn. I'd like to thank Lynn for allowing me to interview her. I'd also like to thank Carly McKeating for cutting this episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can always do it through Twitter at AOTG Network. Or, of course, you can always get us through email info at AOTG Network. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>